Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about fantasy, talking about designing fantasy games. we got Wes Woodbury on the show. Wes, welcome. Hey, Gabe. How are you? I am doing very well, sir. I'm excited to talk to you. you got this really cool game coming out that uh, the art looks amazing. It, it, it's some really cool fantasy stuff going on. So I'm excited to kind of get your thoughts, your ideas on you know building a world and, and creating one of these types of games. There's so many coming out now. And so I feel like it's it's not as easy as it used to be uh, you know, to kind of create one of these fantasy-style games. So I'm curious to hear your ideas, your tips and tricks on how to do it and do it well. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, well, my name is Wes. I've been in game design itself only for about a year and a half now. I've uh, been in the game hobby ever since uh, I started my first job in a comic book store back when I was 16, working for a dollar an hour, uh, just doing some work experience. And then I got... Originally, I went there for comics, but got surrounded by this amazing game world, uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic the Gathering and Warhammer. And just at the time, that's when computers were starting to take off for online gaming. So you'd see a little bit of uh, uh, Warhammer happening on the computer as well. Um, and I just dived in from there. I, I've never really turned back, but um, I didn't get into game design uh, in depth until a year and a half ago. Yeah, very cool. And so you've been working on this game for a while, but like... What is a fantasy game? Let's just get a really good working definition. When someone says fantasy, because I mean, that can mean a lot of different things and maybe some not so great things sometimes. Uh, it's like, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so uh, a fantasy setting to me is about swords and sorcery, uh, an imaginary world where there's not as really any technology unless people decide to blend sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, and fantasy is about heroic characters and evil villains or you know, sometimes people might flip it the other way, uh, but uh, primarily it's about uh, trying to get a couple of uh, very powerful characters together to make their way through a world and accomplish a quest or a journey to save uh, the civilians, so to speak. Yeah, gotcha. So we're, and we're looking at Lord of the Rings style games, you know, Game of Thrones, that kind of thing, right? You got it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so you mentioned some examples a moment ago. What are some really good board game examples that you've tried, you've played of this type of game? Like if you're if, if someone was wanting to make a fantasy game, what, what would you say are the games they need to play to kind of understand the genre? Uh, I'd say the two most important ones to understand the breadth of what people have been exposed to for fantasy would be Dungeons and Dragons and uh, even Magic the Gathering. And Magic the Gathering isn't traditional fantasy per se, but all of the things you can learn about game design and about card design and about interactions um, uh, has been pretty amazing to see what that company's done. So those those two are the big ones. And then kind of coming more current as to what's come out recently, uh, Gloomhaven is the, the big box that rules them all type of thing. And you hear about that one all the time. So I, I definitely say that's one I haven't personally played, but I, I've watched and uh, seen reviews and uh, heard people talk about it plenty. So those would be the big three. Yeah, definitely. Now, magic's interesting because, like you're saying, it's not like your typical, you know, I am a, a knight, I'm a hero going to fight the dragon. But the cool thing about magic is, like, the amount of world building they've done over the last, I don't even know, what, 
two decades now. I mean, how long has I mean, Magic been around forever? And so the amount of world building they've done with with all the different storylines and, and different worlds and different things, it's just amazing just to kind of get in there and check out the art. Like, I feel like you could you could just build so many fantasy games around the art just by looking at it and saying, okay, this is a cool character or this is a crazy monster. And it's just, it's just really, really interesting. And every single set, it seems to have a brand new world that they've kind of cobbled together and created and, and the mechanisms kind of flow in there as well and so like let's talk about that for a little bit like tell me like let's talk about world building like, what are your thoughts on world building and, and maybe with your own game and, and taking inspiration from other games yeah i mean um when i when i went to design this game it was all about starting and creating a world actually originally i had intentions to write a, a fantasy book and i'd started building some of these characters and backgrounds and worlds and um never right had the, had the gusto to get to completion of a book because um, you can't visually see what's happening and should try to read through it over and over. Uh, it's just not my style. But then uh, I figured out that game design was something that I liked and you could see and build your world um, as you created it. And that is what uh, engaged me to keep me going. Um, but building a world is about starting with a, a concept or an idea, uh, whether it's a city or if it's a, a theme of the world. Um, so, for example, uh, I, I love the dark setting in the dark sun setting in Dungeons and Dragons, and that was kind of a thematic world built on magic actually being a form of siphoning it right from the earth itself and watching it decay. I thought, wow, that was such an amazing world, and they came up with an entire book series and the RPG setting for that. Or you could look at the most classic trope from D&D, and that's the Dragonlance setting, where it's just uh, kind of um, that the world is in despair, and there's a giant five-headed dragon trying to destroy the world, and you just need some heroes to save the day. Um, so it can go on... Uh, different extremes. And uh, when I started mine, it was just about um, deciding on what triggered the events of this world to, to be in the state that it's in. So I created something called the Maelstrom that uh, brought magic to the world and really tore up everything that people were used to. And from then, they built and grew into this one giant continent that they know now, uh, but it's got threats from all sides and they haven't yet figured out a way to stop it. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of these games kind of benefit from that epic in nature kind of concept, you know, where it's like it's us against the world. If we don't do something like everyone's dead, we're all going to lose. You know, the dragon's going to eat everyone or the world's going to you know, explode kind of thing. And so like, why do you why do you think so many games and so many movies and books, they kind of they lean towards the giant epic scale as opposed to kind of the, the ground level, you know, just kind of trying to get by, trying to figure things out on a day to day basis. Why, why do you think it's more epic in nature? Uh, I think it's to draw more people in. I mean, I've, I've read some amazing short stories where it's just about um, uh, one hero going to try to save a small town from a couple of goblins. And that story can be just as compelling and um, emp empathy, empathic as a, a giant scale epic novel. But uh, there's something about the epic scale that allows you to have more characters with more branching storylines, uh, more different kinds of threats and requiring different personalities and strategies to defeat. So I think it's more about uh, scale. You can get a broader audience if you have all different kinds of people to appeal to. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, as we're talking about audience and, and that kind of thing, it, it seems like RPG games are more popular now than maybe they ever have been, which is crazy to think that, that nowadays, you know, people are playing them more often than they did back in the seventies when they first came out. Right. And so like, what is it about RPG games, specifically D and D Dungeon Dragons? But I mean, there's so many different offshoots now. Why do you think so many people are drawn in to these games and spend so many hours a week playing them? Uh, I mean, it's just personal opinion, but I think uh, the world that we're in right now is uh, very much technology driven. It's focused on staring at your computer and it's about um, looking at your mobile device and it's about 
um, just trying to make ends meet sometime, and it can be kind of frustrating. And so being able to go into a world where none of that exists, where there's no cell phones, there's no technology, there's um, no budgets, there, it's just you and a sword or you and a spell book or you and a thief in a back alley, and you just have a mission to solve. And if you solve it, you're successful. You don't have to really worry about the world that troubles you outside of it. And people can band together to do that together and um, have a, a sense of accomplishment that they might not be getting in the real world, or is just a, an entirely different feeling than the real world. Yeah, absolutely. I think another great thing is you, you can be whoever you want, you know, so if you have to be the, the accountant all day, well, at night, you can go and get, get some friends and you can be, you know, the, the giant epic hero with all the muscles and all these things. You know, not that accountants can't have muscles, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you can be somebody totally different. I was talking to a guy I interviewed a while back and he talked about how he was an accountant every day and he went home and he didn't want to play a Euro game. He wanted to play a game that like was nothing to do with accounting. It had everything to do with epic feel and like put me in a movie kind of feeling. Yeah, exactly. And he wanted to just blow stuff up and, and kill stuff with a sword and or shoot things with a shotgun. And I think that's that's nothing. You get kind of get this little bit of escapism, but at the same time you're having fun, you're with your friends. Another thing, I don't know if you've you've done any research into this. I, I saw I think it was a TED talk where the guy was talking about how in our brains, like when you're doing when you're playing RPG games or tabletop games, um, and you're and you're kind of imagining yourself doing these things your brain has a, it, it can't tell the difference between doing those in reality versus you've done them in the game. <laughs> and so like the memories that you have, like they're, they're the exact same kind of memories you would have if you had done it for real. And so like all the brain stuff lights up when you're playing RPG games, just the same way it lights up when you're doing things in reality. And so it's really cool how when people look back and they say, Oh, remember that time we, you know, fought the dragon, like their brain is remembering it just the way they would, remember a normal you know like you remember the time i dropped the kids off at school like it's like yeah. in reality and so like i don't know if you've done any research in, into that but i mean it's some crazy stuff what rpg games do to our brains have you have you kind of experienced this yourself or, or seen anything or have seen any experts talk about this yeah i can't say i've done uh, any research on it but what I, I can tell you is that even now i can remember 15 20 years ago when we played certain campaigns in dungeons and dragons those moments uh those moments where you didn't know if the action you were going to take was actually going to result in what you wanted to accomplish. So um, whether, or there's classic moments in books too, and it makes you envision the D&D experience. So there's a, a moment, spoiler alert, in um, uh, the Icewind Dale trilogy where or Bruner Battlehammer has to jump on the back of um, a dragon or a primordial and, and try to hack and slash its way through its head. But players have those moments in real games as well. And they'll remember that moments later. And they'll be like, remember that time that I hit, rolled that 20 year? Um, even more devastating is if you have a critical fail and um, something scary or funny happens and your character loses a limb. I mean, people remember these moments and uh, just trying to create, recreate those in whether it's a RPG or a tabletop game, I think is a, a key selling point for any game is being able to have that moment where people will remember. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, let's let's kind of use that to switch gears a little bit. Why would people want to play a, a board game version of an RPG? You know, when they when they could play D&D, they could play you know, all the many different RPG style games out there. Why would somebody play a board game style version? Instead? Uh, there's a couple of reasons behind that. Uh, setup would be the first one, because in order to play D&D, you have to have a dungeon master, a DM, and you have to pre-plan a campaign unless you buy a pre-written one pre-written ones, which can get expensive and you still have to study them. Uh, so the setup time for the DM or building the campaign, and then there's setup time for the players to build their characters and go through all the different manuals and rule books to get their strengths and feats. So that's part of it. I mean, sometimes that itself mm -hmm. can take 
um, you know, six to 12 hours for a DM and an hour or two for each character. Uh, so the second part would be at any time, if you, your friends have a chance to get together, you don't have to have pre-planned everything. You can just say, hey, you guys want to get together tonight? And the, the group can open the box and away they go. Um, so it's about timing as well, because sometimes you don't know exactly when you and your, your game group are going to have a chance to play. And then the third part is about uh, time frame for play. So if you're playing a board game, often you can squeeze in a fun and epic session in a shorter amount of time than a full D&D role-playing experience, or even the, the massive games like uh, uh, Gloomhaven. It's considered a board game, but it's also uh, a heavy tie over into RPG. Yeah, I think time is probably one of the biggest ones for sure. I know personal, from personal experience, uh, the group of high school guys that, that we, we play D&D uh, every Monday afternoon, and I've been dungeon mastering for a while. I'll look forward to picking it back up when the when the school school year starts back up. But like we've only got about two hours to to do it of this after school you know time period that's allotted for us, and uh, it's hard. It's hard when you only have about two hours to get in a full session of of D and D. It's not it's not made for that. It seems like it seems like it's made for three or four hour sessions, and so you know a board game can really you know speed up the time. Uh, it can kind of keep things a little more uh, compact so to speak. And I've been having to do all these different things. I've actually haven't, I've been having to kind of board gamify our experience just to speed things up. So it hasn't been like the full on, you know, like there's not a whole lot of role playing that we've been doing. It's been a lot of, you know, tactical combat and like real quick decisions as far as like the role playing stuff, not these like kind of long drawn out conversations just because we don't have the time. And so I think that's something that uh, really appeals to people. You can play these board games, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, something like that. Also, I think board games are a really good gateway into the role-playing space, right? So one thing a lot of, a lot of people have trouble with in role-playing games is you can pretty much do anything. <laughs> like the DM looks at you and says, what do you do? And you can basically do anything and, and there's no limits. Uh, it, you know, maybe you can't obviously do crazy. I, I want to fly now. It doesn't work that way. But like for the most part, you can just do whatever you want. And so with board games, you're a lot more limited because of the rules. And so talk to me about that. Like what's been your experience with like writing a rule book that allows players to kind of have this this feeling of the RPG setting where, you know, I got lots of, op- lots of options. At the same time, it's streamlined and say, no, you can only do these things here, but you at the same time don't feel limited by that. It, it kind of helps the game just move along and has a better pace. Yeah, um, you're perfectly right about those that, that decision-making. Decision-making is important for games, but sometimes if it's open-ended like Dungeons & Dragons is, then it, it can create moments of... Uh, discussion that take 20 minutes just to figure out what the next action is. Uh, with a board game, you have those right. uh, set of rules that allow you to just do A or B or C. Uh, so in the game that I've designed, for example, uh, the players have a free roam map. So there's a map with 34 different locations on it, and they can go to any of those places. But it's going to take them a certain amount of turns to get a certain amount of places unless they've got some kind of special effect. And each of those places will have a specific effect that they can read about. Uh, so it gives them freedom to go where they want, but knowing that um, where they go is going to impact how their game ends. Uh, and then uh, decision points about what they want to equip and when they want to discard cards. Uh, so when you're playing an RPG, um, you don't really have cards. It's all in your head and you just write it down on your paper. Uh, but with a board game, you, you feel more tangible. You can hold that uh, helmet in your hand or you can hold that uh, sword of demon slaying in your hand and decide if you want to equip it or not or even if you can't equip it. Uh, so there's uh, some elements of tactile enjoyment, being able to see and feel it in your hands. And then there's an element of um, a set of guidelines that uh, keep you from having to spend too much time making decisions while still feeling like you're in control. 
Yeah, definitely. And that's something actually I've been working on lately. I've been working on my own little like, kind of hybrid RPG slash board game system. And I love the idea of having the cards, having, okay, here's my card that has my weapon on it or has my armor and I can see it, I can put it in front of me and it can be broken. It can be taken away for, you know, and I feel that, right? So if, if, something, if I do something stupid and I, I try to hit the dragon and he takes my sword, well, the, the dungeon master is going to literally take the card away from me and say, hey, sorry, you don't have any more. And that's, that's a really cool thing that a lot of RPG games don't really have. And I guess you could just kind of print your own cards up and stuff like that. But the board game space seems to lend itself to being able to do that in a really cool way. Now, one thing, you, you've been talking about your game a few times. Tell me a little bit more. Give me the, kind of the general synopsis of your game, and then let's kind of dive into some different parts of it. Yeah, well, uh, Legends of Novus is the name of the game, and it's a, it's a um, classic trope fantasy world, but at the same time, it offers some elements that you may not have seen in other games. The core concept is a legendary hero with five predetermined characters in this epic fantasy world. And you can play it solo or up against up to four other players. Um, and it's a shorter time span. Like once players get a grasp of the game and the location guide, it'll just take about 60 or 90 minutes to play. Um, and throughout the game, they're going to start the game with this character that's kind of a lower level adventurer. They've got some small skills, but nothing strong enough to defeat the major creatures of the world. Uh, but across this planet of Novus, there are some massive creatures that nobody's been able to figure out how to defeat. Uh, there's a, a volcanic dragon, there's a sea hydra, there's a demon. And the goal of the characters is to defeat at least one of these quest creatures and to earn 25 experience. And that shows the world that they are an epic hero and they become a legend of Novus because they'll be remembered forever in the, the history books, so to speak. And the first player to do that wins the game. Uh, so it, it creates a zero to hero um experience for whoever's playing even the player that doesn't win really gets to see their character power up very quickly over the game uh, and every game is different because you can advance to different classes you're going to fight different creatures you're going to find different rewards um, and, and there's a huge uh, visual presence if you take a look at the art that's being done for the game so far uh, i really wanted to make sure that i found somebody that could embrace what was in my mind about art i mean i've played magic the gathering and Dungeons and Dragons for years, and um, to me, that is what a fantasy game has to have for art if you want it to be realistic. Um, and it's hard to do that at an effective cost. Uh, and I guess the last thing is you have a lot of freedom in it, so um, being able to travel the world at your own uh, leisure, but knowing that you're still kind of in a race against the other players, uh, gives you a lot of room for deciding where and when to go and when to discard cards and when to um, battle that quest creature, even if you feel like it could be uh, a lopsided battle. Yeah, it's very cool. So a few things that you, you mentioned I want to dive a little more into. So one thing you talked about were tropes, right? So a lot of these games, especially coming out now, are kind of, they feel like the generic fantasy, so to speak. And so when you say tropes, like what are, what does that mean? Uh, so a trope is something that you would see in 90% of fantasy settings. So uh, the fighter class, the wizard class, the, the thief class, and my game has those. So those are considered tropes. Um, and sometimes it's how you deal with those tropes what do you do to make them stand out or make them um, unique so if i just say i have a fighter class and he has extra combat that's pretty straightforward and that's uh, trope all the way but then if you can add in layers to to build that trope into something more unique and uh, asymmetrical by giving them specific statistics and specific abilities and uh, specific ways they can advance and equip it feels less tropey after that and more of a character style or another example of tropes is uh, creatures like yeah, my world does have skeletons and does have goblins and does have um, orcs and those are very uh, um, fantasy tropes because you see them in many 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 games uh, so it's 
you can have tropes as long as you don't lean on them to, to run the whole game. You still have to do something within those tropes uh, interesting than the rest of the games that are out there. Yeah, so the stereotypical fantasy, the, the kind of trope fantasy. And so like, how do you how do you do that? How do you make it stand out? How do you do some things that are different enough? Because I feel like tropes can also be good things. You know, if someone says, you know, they see a wizard, like, oh, I know what that is. And they, they've kind of had that connection. Like, I understand how this game works versus just calling it something else. You know, if you say, oh, this is a spellcaster, but it's really just a wizard. You know what I mean? Like sometimes people just change the vocabulary and it, it doesn't really change anything. And it's so, like, how do you kind of use tropes to your in your to your benefit but also how do you make things stand out so players are like okay this isn't just typical generic fantasy right yeah uh, i mean the stereotypes are actually important because they are what draw people to even look or want to play a game in the first place so if, if you made a game that was a whole bunch of classes that nobody had ever heard of and have abilities that are, are just over the top um, you probably wouldn't even draw anybody into your game um, so this do allow you in what you have to offer and then like you said uh, what can you do within that to make it better? So, for example, when it comes to, um, just trying to think of a good example from the game here. When it comes to the class, for example, uh, like we're talking about, if your fighter just has the ability to defeat creatures better and be a little bit stronger than everybody else, then you've just really identified with the most classic of all tropes and not really done anything different. But if you have ways to to adapt them to make them more unique and give them ways that they can interact with the game that are still just as relevant as the wizard or just as relevant as the thief, but uh, offer a different gameplay result, then um, you get people interested into how that character works. Or with the, um, the world, I mean, the worlds can be considered a trope as well. It's just another fantasy setting with more creatures and more dangers. If you can make it feel like uh, the world is different in ways, like there's some kind of politicalness behind it or some kind of um, uh, history behind it, then they'll feel more involved in it instead of just another fantasy world full of dwarves and elves. All right. So that leads me to my next question. And so like, where, where do you start? Like, what are, what are your ideas on where to start one of these? Do you start with the intrigue? Do you start with the politics? Do you start with the classes, with the characters you want in there? Do you start with the systems and like the, how the dice are going to work? And, and I mean, there's a million, there's no necessarily right or wrong answer here. Just kind of in your opinion, where do you like to start? Where do you suggest other people start when they're making fantasy games? Uh, in my opinion, what people relate the most to, they're going to interact the most with, and that's usually the, the character that they're going to be, unless you're going to create a world where they create their own characters. And the second part would be the, the characters or creatures that they're going to interact with, so whether they're NPCs, which are non-player characters, or uh, the actual uh, enemies or quest creatures, uh, for example, in the game I have. Uh, so just being able to find a way to make those characters attractive visually but also thematically in what they do. Um, so their statistics or their um, abilities, uh, their maybe their hindrances can be an identifier of a character trait because it can be just as cool to have uh, a nice penalty that offsets a really good bonus. So if you can, if you're building a board game about fantasy, just trying to find a way to make the characters and the creatures something that people are interested in, and then you can kind of build a world around them either after that, or uh, if you've already built a world in the past, you can really put characters into any world setting. Uh, you just want to be able to have something people can enjoy. Yeah, it's a really good point. If, if players are going to be spending the majority of their time as these characters, then that's probably where you used to spend the majority of your time is, you know, making that the best part, right? Because they, they want to be, a, you want to be a cool character. You want to be somebody that, <laughs> that matters, that has a cool purpose, has cool abilities, whatever, you know, cool stats, whatever it is. And the world can be you know, it can change. Uh, it could be totally different. The, the world can be kind of boring, honestly. But if you have some really amazing characters, 
you know, I think about how many movies where the world was just kind of normal life, but the characters are in there, which is awesome. And so people, you know, respond to it. And so I thought that's a really cool way to, to think about it. Just character driven as opposed to uh, other things. And I've, I've seen all different ways, right? It's kind of like J.R.R. Tolkien versus uh, the, uh, the guy that wrote Game of Thrones, whatever his name is. Um, <laughs> you know, Tolkien really loved his characters where Game of Thrones, you see like they really, that guy really loves the world. And you kind of see the difference in writing and, and the differences in the way the show went versus the Lord of the Rings movies. That, you know, character driven versus kind of world building, world driven. It's just a very interesting concept to kind of look in. And, and, you know, there's no no way is right or wrong versus the other one. It's just interesting the way people approach different things. So in your in your game, like what did what was your approach when you were first starting? Like what were your ideas? And like, OK, this is the game I want to make. Like, tell me about the beginnings. Well, the, the, what started me in designing this game was actually, and I mentioned this to a, a few others, but it was, uh, I went to the game store with my son and we were just trying to find something to, to do on a Friday night. Um, and we pulled out a game of Munchkin and brought that to the table. I'd never played it. Uh, I'd heard about it once or twice on the net. Uh, and, and we whipped out a game of that and it played games all my life. I played Magic all my life. So to play a game like Munchkin was just a complete different spectrum of fantasy card game. Um, and... Uh, to be honest, I didn't enjoy the game because uh, I don't really like humor games that much, and the, the simplicity behind it was almost too simple. But what it did is it, it triggered me to think, well, why? I want an experience like this, but I want it to be a full-fledged fantasy game because it, it reminded me of why I love D&D so much. Uh, so I wanted to create a game that was a, a single-play session for players to get the full D&D experience, to get those epic moments, to, to feel heroic, to be able to defeat uh, the worst guy at the end of a campaign instead of trying to hack and slash your way through um, 60 hours of gameplay to get to that point. And Munchkin just kind of triggered that goal for me. And, and it was from that point that I started designing Legends of Novus to be a board game where you would have that D&D experience in one session with um, as many people as, well, up to five players. Um, and from there, I, I started um, uh, deciding what characters to use and uh, make sure it was asymmetrical because if you have all symmetrical characters, the game can feel fairly generic and then created the creatures that they want to defeat to save the world and then built the world around them. Yeah. Very cool. Now, something you mentioned earlier was art. Uh, let's talk about how important art is in these types of games. You know, there's some, there's some style of games where art is not as important, but I feel like fantasy, it's not one of those. I feel like fantasy, it's really important to have a good art style and then and kind of set the mood so to speak. So tell me about kind of your experience with, with art for your game and just your thoughts overall with art in fantasy games. Yeah, I've seen, uh, I've seen games do it really, really well. And then some games uh, kind of go for that more cartoony digitally look. Uh, and I've always in loved the magic, the gathering viewpoint behind it, where um, the art that's going to be on a card should be um, really something visually that people want to enjoy. And so if you pick up that card or if you see that card on the table, uh, you should want to look at that card over and over again. Uh, you don't want it to just be something ugly that you could just throw stuff on top of and not worry about because it really represents your world. Uh, so when I was trying to get the art designed for the game, um, I went to a couple of different sites. I know you've got sites about art and we've, uh, I went to ArtStation and uh, went on a few Facebook posts and came across a guy that uh, offered to send me an example of his work. Um, so I gave him uh, an orc piece to do some art for. And he came back with this amazing piece, very high detailed. It's actually, you could picture it being on a Magic the Gathering card and wouldn't even second guess it. It was that well done. And I, I just couldn't believe what he came up with because a very young guy, I think he's around 21 and just uh, got out of art school. And so uh, from that point on, we discussed some rates and discussed uh, how, 
how comfortable he is in doing more and more cards and um, it, he became the lead artist for this game. Uh, but the, the art, not only for the orc, but if you look at the Hydra, which was his second piece, and then the Knight, which was his third piece, they just really envelop that trope, so to speak. But at the same time, they visually make you want to stare at it. I mean, they've got all kinds of different details and intricacies, uh, but still even from a distance represent um, what fantasy is. So, uh, And then the locations are the other part. So if you want to have a, a believable world, you can't just draw a mountain or just draw a castle and expect people to understand your world. Uh, the, the fantasy locations that you have have to have something special about them. So for example, um, the knight um, lives in a place called Exire, the Molten City, and the artist Boris Tirano did an excellent job at getting lava kind of built into giant gears and wheels in the city. And you can really envision that being uh, something completely different than you've ever been to or the city of A, um, you can almost uh, picture the uh, Ewok moon of Endor. When you, when you look at that piece of landscape, you see the locations in the trees and you see the, uh, the bridges throughout and it just makes you envision a whole different place instead of just a castle or just a forest. So th those two different art, art styles are blended to be able to give uh, cool, believable, attractive characters and creatures in amazing landscapes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think it can be overstated how important art is in these types of games. And it's one of those things that if you're going to make a game like this and you're going to be the publisher, you're going to do a Kickstarter or whatever, you got to be willing to spend the money on, on doing it because I mean, it's one of the things that draws people in. It gets them into that kind of uh, that mind space that you want them to be in, in that fantasy place in your brain where you can kind of feel like you are this character and you are fighting this dragon. You are going up to the castle and, and hoping for the best. And so I feel like the art just needs to be something that uh, the people need to budget more for than they probably anticipate on the front end. Especially, if, like you're saying, if you have a lot of cards, you have a lot of items, you have a lot of different things that you're going to need art for. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you want to do your do your own uh, own game, you want to publish it, you want to do the Kickstarter, just be aware <laughs> that is not a cheap route uh, as far as the art for uh, for these kinds of games. Yeah, and one of the recommendations I've been given and now I freely give is that if you're building your first game, um, you want to build it so it's the art is good, but maybe so you can find ways to reuse the art. So maybe you... Uh, commission a very nice piece for uh, $250 or something, but you make sure that it has all kinds of different things within the art piece so that maybe for different cards, you can zoom and crop and use parts of that um, as different cards. Or if you're designing a card game where you can use the same art on multiple cards, kind of like a, a set of playing cards. Um, when you're building a first game or you're new um, or really cost conscious, there's ways that you can get good art and reuse it instead of paying uh, X amount of dollars for 300 unique cards because uh, that can get extremely expensive. Yeah, that's really good advice. And it reminds me of Fantasy Flight. I mean, think about the database of art they have now with all their Cthulhu-based games, their Lovecraft games. And they now when they have a new one come out, they can just kind of go to the database and say, okay, let's let's use this one. Let's use that one. Let's use the, the picture of Cthulhu over here. Let's use this uh, investigator, this image over here. And they've used the same art in a lot of different games. But it's but it's okay. We we understand, and they they do different angles, they do different croppings, and it, it well it all works. And so they've been able to save a lot of money on on doing it that way. And so I think it's a really good point. Like how can you get the most bang for your buck in, in using you know different uh, the same art piece for different uh, things? And that's the same for the box cover, right? So if you've got some really cool card art, well, can you also kind of pull that over and use it on your box image or use it on your rule book? And that way you're you're kind of getting more for your money. Yeah, that's, I think that's part of why uh, deck builders, you can get a big bang for your buck in deck builders because you can have 
20 cards with the same pieces of art and nobody blinks an eye at it. Well, cool. well, it sounds like your game is, is a little bit open world. It has a little open world feel where you can kind of go different places and go where you want. And so I know that's something that a lot of games have tried to do. They've tried to be a little open world, but it's it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to make a tabletop open world game. Video games just have such an edge on this. And so tell me kind of how you've uh, tried some different things or different mechanisms or whatever to kind of make your game have that open world feel, but it's still a board game. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a couple of challenges with an open world. And I think the most important one is what is a reason why a character would want to go to the different parts of the world. Uh, so I tried to put in a few mechanics that maybe other games could adapt to as well that really encourage and entice people to go to different parts of the world without actually being told to. Because uh, if you're being told to go somewhere, then you're back to that strict campaign mode instead of uh, doing what you want mode. Uh, so one of the ways is through uh, each of the locations having unique uh, features about them. So they're asymmetrical locations. If you go to uh, Jakar in the south of the map, for example, the thief uh, gets a special benefit. If you go to, um, let's say, the Serenity Lake, for example, that's way on the north of the map, but any player that goes there would get a little experience boost for uh, taking that journey. Um, or the quest creatures are dispersed on all different edges of the map. So if you want to battle a certain quest creature, which is a win condition, you have to find your way to one of those uh, special locations. So being able to incentivize players to go to different locations. And the second part was making sure that there is a mechanic built in that doesn't allow anybody to camp out. So if you ever ever played a tr traditional game like Final Fantasy, like uh, that's kind of another one of my inspirational games. But the very first Final Fantasy, you would spend your first two to three hours of gameplay just sitting at the core city and building up your characters. And I wanted to make sure that didn't happen either. Uh, so there's a mechanic in there where you can't um, actually explore the same location or stay in the location uh, it, two turns in a row. And you have to actually leave for a full turn before you can go back. Uh, and so having a way to prevent camping out or repetitive play um, is another thing that would be required if you're going to do an open world. So those are a few examples anyway. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, there's so many video games where you just kind of have to grind for a while. Like yeah. if you're not quite high enough level, you're just going to have to spend the next several hours of gameplay just grinding and, and beating these enemies and gaining experience points and growing in levels. And so I'm glad that that's not in your game. Uh, it doesn't seem like a fun thing in a board game it's just to just have to grind things out. All right, so let's talk about a little bit different angle here. Let's talk about the upside-down game, so to speak, the uh, looking at a fantasy game from a different angle. So, for instance, you know, normally you're the hero and you're going off and fight the dragon, but I've seen lots of games that you're not the hero, you're the merchant selling weapons and items to the hero. And so you kind of the fantasy game, but it's from a different angle, different perspective or different point of view. Or maybe you're the goblins in this one and you're trying to defeat the heroes who keep coming into your home and trying to steal all your gold and kill your family. <laughs> and so, like, what are your thoughts on like looking at the fantasy games from a different angle? Are you doing anything like that in your game where you're kind of taking something and, and turning it on its head? I think um, that that's probably one of the best ways to try to make fantasy more interesting and, and stray away from the tropes. Um, one of the games that recently funded on Kickstarter by a guy named Johnny Tinkle, I apologize if I get his last name wrong, but he made a game called The Goblin King is Angry. And basically each player has a herd of goblins and that's who they are. And they're kind of cooperatively trying to destroy the human tower because they're sick of being the little guys that get killed for experience all the time. Um, so that was cool because the players are all attacking the human tower, but uh, still working together. And that was a great way to flip fantasy on its head instead of you trying to defeat the goblins. You're the goblins trying to defeat the humans. Uh, in my game, for example, uh, the closest thing I might come to that is Vin, the thief character. Uh, he's called Vin, the shadow of Drakkar, and he's kind of a 
um, a heavy player in the Thief Guild in the southern city of Drakkar. Uh, but he's enticed to get involved in this campaign in Legends of Novus because um, the, the quest creatures or the, those crazy monsters that are destroying the world are threatening his surroundings as well. So he could just keep living his life of luxury and theft, uh, but he decides to kind of step out and try to help the world, but still being kind of self-serving because then uh, he'll benefit from it in the long run. Um, and I think there, there's many games that could uh, perform well if they went from the side of the monster trying to defend themselves against heroes or try to take over the world, and that's your win condition. Uh, I think those could be some pretty cool game ideas. I don't have anything in the works myself for that, but uh, I'm certain that uh, I'd play something like that if it were out there. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's The sky's the limit right now, honestly. I mean, with so many games coming out each year, you would think that we're starting to run out of ideas or you know different ways of doing things but we're really not there's still so many things that we can do especially looking things from at things from different angles right uh, instead of being frodo and aragorn like what does it look like to be sauron and saruman and like try to try to go find the ring and, and do it from that angle you know and, and games are doing that now and i think it's a really cool cool thing it reminds me of like dead of winter when it was well, it's a zombie game but it's not about the zombies yeah right the zombies are just part of the setting so what does it look like to have a fantasy game where it's not really about the fantasy? The fantasy is just kind of the setting, but like there's other things going on. And I like that whole goblin thing. Like, yeah, now we're the goblins and yeah. we're going to take back our, take back our land from these evil humans that keep trying to kill us just to get experience points to move on to level two. You know, it's, it's a cool way to look at it. And, and I'm excited to see what more and more people come up with. That's not just this same, you know, generic kind of thing. I'm a fighter. I'm a wizard. Let's go beat the bad guy. Like there's, what else can we do? Can we have intrigue? Can we have different things? And I like what you're doing with the open world. There's more options. It's not just this on a rail, go into the dungeon, beat up stuff, go home. Like there's more to it. And that's really cool. But not that there's wrong, anything wrong with just a normal dungeon crawl. Yeah. That's the thing. There's no wrong answer for, for what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a lot of these games have a ton of content, like Gloomhaven, which I like how you, you put that, the, the box to rule them all. That's a good way to put it. Uh, it just has a lifetime worth of content in there, which is just, it's just insane. So like, what is, what are, what was your approach to just the amount of content going into your game? Like, is there a happy medium between like crazy, so much that no one's ever going to do it all versus I've played this game one time, so I've played all of it. Like, where, where, where are you trying to get to in the middle? And like, how do you do it effectively? Uh with, with me being a newer designer, um, the concept of even using minis was very daunting. Uh, it, I looked into it, the costs, and it really wasn't worth it, both for uh, trying to get models created specific to the game and get them produced by a manufacturer. Um, and if you look at many of these uh, fantasy games that are out there, if you really look at what the games do, uh, you don't necessarily need minis to play them. They're just a visual, tactile thing. So they're for those players that really like minis and those players that like to hold and uh, visualize things on the table. So uh, kudos to those games for being so successful with them. Uh, but um, when I was looking at the design that I'd made for Legends of Novus, because uh, I built it from the mechanics up, not from the from the components up, um, uh, th there's really no purpose at all to having a mini on my map other than to, to see what it might look like in 3D. So I went with standees for that reason, uh, for cost savings, for weight savings, for um, time savings to actually create the game. And uh, from there, just trying to just see how can you build a, a great big giant fantasy world and game, but keep the cost less than $50. Because that, once you get past $50, you're looking at games that are mini heavy. You're looking at games that have massive campaigns and expansions. And I wanted a game that was had what everybody wanted for fantasy, but was accessible at a decent price point. Uh, so that's where it came to um, making sure almost everything was either on cardstock or tiles or tokens. 
making sure that the, the character figures were standees and that uh, most of the enjoyment of the game came from how your character interacts with the cards or with the equipment. And that's where the character board kind of came into fruition. Uh, I wanted to have something unique to the game that you don't see in many games. So even in many games, you see little player boards or little mats, but your cards often go to the side or get tucked underneath. Uh, with this, it's kind of a visual board. And again, going back to that Final Fantasy um, example, or even Diablo, for those of you that have played that, uh, when you open your uh, box on your game or you open your inventory window, you can visualize everything that's on your character. And that's always impressive to see as it builds up. And that's what I wanted on the tabletop is to be able to see in, in full size every card that you've accrued, every piece of equipment you put on um, throughout the game. Uh, so you'll see that if you watch the, the promotional video or check out the Kickstarter page, just how that visual can look. Yeah, for sure. Now, I've seen a lot of games that have like a like a big storybook, you know, have it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. Did you look into that at all? Like, what, what are your thoughts on, on those kinds of games versus cards, like having like an actual, like a book that, that comes with the game? Yeah, so uh, I decided not to go with a, a, a full campaign. So the story, people could come up with stories as they play if they wanted to. Um, Joel from the Board Game Mechanics podcast, he uh, really um, took that to the next level and turned this into a kind of a miniature D&D campaign with his son, uh, which I thought was really cool that you could do that with board game. But um, the idea was that uh, the locations are there, the creatures are there, the equipment is there, but the story element of it itself um, why you're going to fight this creature, why you're going to this location, that's just um, imagination. So it's not pre-written, it's not predetermined, and players can talk about it or they cannot talk about it. It's however they want to play the game. Uh, so they still get the experience of doing all those things without having to consult a 500-page campaign book to see uh, what's going on and why. Yeah, definitely. Now, did you look, in, in, look into anything as far as the cost of those? Like, I've, I've seen some some games that have just this you know 100-page, 200-page book and it's really well done there's tons of art that like did you look at anything as far as the cost and adding the weight and stuff uh i looked at the cost of building DD or uh, rpg style books from um, drive-through cards and of course if you mass produce them overseas i'm sure they'd be significantly cheaper uh, so one of the options that i had included in the original launch was uh, an art book that gave history of the world so it doesn't necessarily give a campaign uh, guideline, but if you want to know more about why the locations are the way they are or, or um, how the characters came to be, that's what the art book would entail. But I'm also going to have uh, that information available online. Yeah, that's another interesting idea. I've seen more and more games kind of offer that as an option. I think Tidal Blades is one recently that, that did it where you can get the art book as well. And so like, walk me through your, your thought process there as far as like, offering this as another option, as an add-on where people can, can get the, the history, the backstory of the different worlds and characters. Like, Help me understand, like, what, what were you thinking? Like, why is that becoming more and more popular? Uh, in a fantasy setting in particular, people like to be a part of the world and understand what it is they're playing in. Uh, and so having a, a, tact, a book that's separate from the game uh, gives them something that they could read uh, in bed or read on the couch without having to pull up the game box. And it gives you a chance to really emphasize the art. So if you, like we talked about, the art is such a critical piece of success in fantasy, but they're printed on such tiny cards. It's a poker-sized card. So you see this all this money you invested in this nice piece of artwork. Uh, it, it's great to be able to see that full-fledged on a 8.5 by 11 page or in a, in a special art layout in a book. And at the same time, like I said, the artist I used is really new, uh, but he does amazing work in fantasy. And to, to get some extra exposure and really visualize what he has to offer, uh, I wanted to give this as an alternative approach. And this would be 
if somebody uh, wanted to purchase the art book, it would be fulfilled through a different vendor from the actual game because uh, it's an entirely different uh, aesthetic that makes people want the art book. Yeah, awesome. Well, Wes, this has been great. Do you have any kind of like other ideas or other tips and tricks for putting together a fantasy game? Uh, I think it's uh, just about being passionate about the setting that you're creating. I mean, you can't just uh, design, just throw a wizard and throw a dragon and, and roll a couple of dice and hope that that's how the game will play out. You want to be able to have players get involved and immersed in the world uh, uh, through the artwork, through the, the legacy or information behind those locations, and um, just through exciting gameplay uh, and, and almost simplistic gameplay. So one of the we didn't really touch on this, but one of the things that can draw you away from some of these bigger games, whether it's uh, Gloomhaven or whether it's um, uh, D&D or the, the bigger miniature tactical games, is uh, the mechanics behind combat. And combat almost becomes the, a game in itself. And so if you can simplify certain elements of the, the fantasy genre without taking away from it completely, uh, you may be able to make the game interesting to a different branch of players. So for example, the combat system in this game is just the roll of a single die, but then you add in all these different combat modifiers that you have helped build up over time. Uh, so there's strategy behind it, but it's still a single roll instead of having to measure distance and direction and whether you have a ranged weapon or not. Um, all kinds of things can happen in those bigger games. So uh, I think simplicity can help uh, reach more players. Yeah, and so let's dive a little bit deeper into the combat. Talk, talk me through your process of creating a combat system. I mean, there's so many out there, and then so many that you could really just borrow from, whether you want to do the, the D20 system like D&D uses, or you know you want to have like the success, like the, you need to have five or six. If you roll D6s, you need to roll five or six for successes, like a lot of other games use. use. And so like, talk me through your, your process of developing the combat system, maybe things you put in, maybe things you took out. Uh, well, most of my um, history of knowing combat systems lies in dragons but i have uh, watched videos on youtube and online about some of these other fantasy games out there um, or even uh, playing betrayal for example using three six-sided dice that have blank sides that was completely new to me uh, so that was kind of cool but i wanted a, a way to be like miniature DD. so again um, if each weapon had their own different side of die that'd be another component you'd have to buy and another die you'd have to roll i just wanted to be a very linear uh, roll a single die and do some modifiers, and that is your combat roll. But you also have to have some risk involved, so that's where the critical fail comes in. Um, if you can put an element of risk into any combat or any challenge scenario, then even the person who might be winning by uh, a fair amount could have a chance to fail and give the second or third player a chance to catch up. Um, so you want players to be able to impact the results of their roll through equipment, through cards in their hand, and through abilities on their card, but also a chance of failure so that it doesn't feel like um, they're just wading through the goblins without a problem. Yeah. Now, most of these games are cooperative, but you chose to go the competitive route. So talk me through that. Like, what was the, the thought process in making this a, a, a non-cooperative game? Well, the, the funny thing about cooperative is people are still very <laughs> competitive within a co-op setting. So uh, people want to compare who's got the best stats, who's, who's going to... Uh, get the last hit on the, the dragon, who's going to get the most gold. Uh, there's always a competitive nature to these co-op games. And even in Pandemic, pandemic Legacy or in um, uh, some of these other co-op games, you still want to show that you contributed your best part. So I thought um, the players are still cooperatively trying to solve the world's problems, uh, but they're trying to make a name for themselves first and just represent that they were... Um, it doesn't necessarily mean the characters alone, 
Uh, you could have imaginary party that's traveling along with the one hero that's kind of representing your team. Um, but it's still that gives you that sense of urgency uh, to complete it faster and give you that, uh, uh, I guess, way to, to finalize the game, um, which is a bit different than competitive or co-op, I should say. Yeah, very cool. Well, Wes, this has been great, man. I really appreciate your time. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts? If you have, you know, if you were talking to somebody that's right now thinking about making a fantasy game, maybe they're working on a fantasy game right now, what would you tell them? Uh, I would tell them definitely see what's out there, uh, but find a way to put a different spin on it. Because if you look even right now, I think in the month of uh, June or in the next month or so, there's probably at least 12 to 15 fantasy-themed games coming out. Uh, and mine is just one of many of them. So um, to, to be able to stand out, you have to have uh, some kind of cool mechanic or some kind of different selling point. Um, you can't just repeat Gloomhaven and you can't just repeat uh, D&D or repeat role player. You've got to do something uh, different to make people want to buy your game and theirs because they're going to buy the one that looks the best and plays the best. And if they're going to want to play yours as well, you've got to give them a reason to. Yeah, absolutely. you got to find a way to stand out. Well, cool, man. Well, tell me a little bit more about your game. It's on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the, the one-minute elevator pitch. Yeah, so Legends of Novus, it's a one-to-five-player game in a new fantasy setting. It's uh, It plays completely from start to finish in 60 to 90 minutes, which is a big selling point for a fantasy game. And it's got that open-world um, self-control aspect to it where you uh, control your destiny. And... Uh, what else? The art itself is really um, helps you envision the world that I, I tried to create here. Uh, so I fell in love with the art that these guys have created, and I think it really uh, pairs up well with what's going to happen to you in the world, trying to defeat these huge, devastating creatures that are uh, threatening the world, and your aspirations to become a legends of no legend of Novus um, and be part of the history of this world. Awesome. Well, man, it sounds like a cool game. It looks like a cool game. I, I love the box art, especially. And I hope it does really well for you. So good luck with the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you very much, Gabe. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing. Keep playtesting and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?